country grows quite, quite a bit. And then other times, because of war or something else, you'll see that the, that the borders will shrink. And so it's fascinating to, to sit there and watch literally hundreds of years of history unfold before your very eyes in just a matter of minutes. Now the thing is, we can all look at history and, and we can watch what has happened. We can, we can look back at the, what has taken place before, but we don't have that same ability to look at the future, do we? In the hundred plus years, the borders of any nation on this earth, including our own, those borders can change dramatically in the future. And so even though we can observe these historical trends, the reality is we don't know what's going to happen later. And so when it comes to history, there are three basic viewpoints. The first viewpoint is basically what my former students that I used to teach in junior high, this was how they viewed history. They think that history is meaningless. Where's Tanner? I need a drum there. Thank you. All right. And so they think that history is meaningless. And so they come into class and they look at me and say, Mr. Will, hi, why do we have to learn all this junk? This is all stuff that took place in the past. This is no fun. No one cares about this stuff. Well, this line of reasoning, reasoning it basically is saying there is a God who is like a watchmaker. The great creator of the universe, he, he's like this watch creator. He, he made a watch and he wound it all the way up as tight as it would go. And then he began to let it run. That's what the earth is. And because he's the watchmaker that got things going, he's not going to intervene. He's not going to interfere in everything. He's just going to let it go until it finally runs down. And therefore, everything that takes place is meaningless. There's no direction to this thing we call history. <coughs> the second point of view is handed down to us from Greek philosophy. The way these people understood history is that it is more circular in nature. We've often heard things like history will repeat itself, and that's what these people believe. So what they're basically saying is what takes place today will take place again at some point in the future, something like it. Or things that are happening today have already taken place, and so people are oppressed, and then people are freed from their oppression, and then people will be oppressed, and people will be freed, those, that sort of thing. It, it's cyclical. It happens over and over again. In the human race, we continue to just carry out this same drama. But at the end of the day, they say, nothing ever really changes. Nothing is making a difference, and therefore, life is meaningless. But then there's this third view of history, and this is the biblical view. This is what Jesus believes. This is what the Old Testament was always telling us. And this view states that there is an end to this thing that we call time. We call it the end of days. And at some point out there, maybe tomorrow or maybe a thousand years from now, something called the day of the Lord is going to happen. And when that day happens, you and I will understand things a lot better than what we understand today. We don't have all the information we need right now, but we will understand it at some point. And until that time that God, as the director of this thing we call history, he is pointing all of civilization towards that day. But in the meantime, you and I, we, we are supposed to be living our lives not worrying about all of that stuff. We understand that God is in control and that he has everything in hand. He, it's going to be okay. And so that right there is the view of history that Jesus has in mind as he leads us in this thing we call the Lord's Prayer. Most specifically this next petition. We pray thy kingdom come. 
which means that God is bringing his kingdom to us, and at the same time, you and I are supposed to be working towards the goal of its coming. Now, one of the questions I receive on a fairly regular basis is, what exactly is the kingdom of God? So to these Jewish people living in the first century, the, the kingdom of God equated the nation of Israel. The, the citizens of Israel were, were desperately searching for this person they called the Messiah. They believed that he was the one who was going to arrive. He was going to step into, into power. He was going to drive out the Romans from the nation of Israel. He was going to reestablish David's monarchy on the throne in Jerusalem forever and ever. But you see, Jesus, he had other ideas about this thing we call the kingdom of God. And so he taught us all sorts of things. And throughout his teachings, it's discovered that he was actually telling us that there are three paradoxes about God's holy kingdom. The first is that, that God's kingdom is already here. God's kingdom got here through this person we call Jesus. This person we call the Christ, the Messiah. But it's also a future promise. And so we call this paradox the already not yet reality of God's kingdom. God's kingdom arrived when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And yet we, will only, we have only begun to see God's kingdom through these teachings. We won't see the fullness of that kingdom until Jesus returns, until he comes back at the, for the second time. The second paradox is that the kingdom of God is near to us, but it's also far away from us. Every single time that a new brother or sister joins into God's family, the kingdom gets closer to us. And, and we, get a, we have opportunities to catch these glimpses of the kingdom every time we see people helping other people. And whenever we see people kneeling down in service for other people, and every time we see that the value of human life, all human life, is being valuable, those are glimpses of the kingdom. The kingdom is right there in front of us at those instances. And yet the kingdom is still so far away because we know, don't we? We know that evil still exists. We know that selfishness continues to pull at us all the time. We, we know, we see time and time again that, that sin comes in and, and drives a wedge between people, break, breaks these relationships. And so we know that the kingdom remains aloof. It is far, far away. And then finally, we, we have signs all around us indicating that the kingdom of God is on the verge of being born right here in our presence. Jesus told us in the Gospels, he said, these are the signs you can watch. Watch for these particular things, and when you see that, you know the kingdom is about to be born in your presence. But he also told us that we shouldn't spend a great deal of time trying to probe these deep mysteries. It's not really for us to know when this is going to take place, is it? And so we shouldn't be sitting here trying to calculate out when the second coming is going to take place, when the kingdom is going to get here. Jesus says it is unknown to you, and, by the way, it's unknowable to you. And so all of this kingdom talk leads us to this next petition. You and I, we pray, just like we did this morning, that God's kingdom will come. But the expectation is that you and I will also be working to help bring that kingdom to earth. The number one rule about being a Christian is you be nice to people. You don't treat people in ugly ways. Because the way we treat other people is of paramount importance to God our Father. After all, you cannot 
go out of this room and curse your brother or sister who you can see and feel and experience life with with the same mouth that you are praising God with. You can't do it. It's impossible. You can't treat God's greatest creation, His greatest love, like garbage and then be a child of God. But it goes even beyond that. With every single hungry mouth that we feed, and with every thirsty soul we provide drink, with every stranger that we invite to come and be a part of who we are, with every naked person that we clothe, with every sick person we care for, with every prisoner that we go and, and visit, you and I are doing kingdom work. We are bringing the reality of God's holy kingdom to earth. Now, I love how this man by the name of N.T. Wright puts it. He's a, he's a theologian in the Anglican Church. Listen to what he says. Salvation, then, is not going to heaven, but being raised to life in God's new heaven and new earth. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but instead to colonize earth with the life of heaven. And that, after all, he says, is what the Lord's Prayer is all about. And that leads us to the next petition. Thy will be done. Thy will be done here on earth as it is being done in heaven. God fulfills his will. But you see, it's also our job to discover that will and then to obey it in our daily life. So as people of faith, we, we acknowledge that God is in, in control, don't we? But we understand that, that God is driving this thing we call history, this timeline, forward into this eventual outcome that's going to take place. But you see, in the meantime, we also understand that you and I, we have this thing called free will, don't we? We are able to make decisions all of the time, and, and we can decide whether we want to go in the same direction that God is going, or we can go our own direction, regardless of what God is doing. And so that means that, that you and I, we, we live a daily life in this kind of tension, don't we? A tension between God's sovereignty and then our own free will. My guess is that Every person in here, we, we have experienced this tension. We continue to experience this tension on a regular basis, daily or maybe even hourly at times. On the one hand, we do. We want to treat people the right way. We want to go out and to do the good works that Jesus has called us out to do. But on the other hand, there's this other thing, this other thing that's always in the way. It keeps us from doing the things we know we're supposed to be doing. And so that's where that second part of this petition comes in. On earth as it is in heaven. We need to understand that in the heavenly realm, the will of God flows out unobstructed. It, it flows from the very royal throne throughout the entire realm of the heavens. Nothing is there to impede it. And these angels that are there with God, they understand His will. They're doing His will. They know exactly what they're supposed to be doing. But on earth, this something, it keeps getting in the way of God's will. And we call that something sin. Sin stands between God's will. His will is to 
His desire for the good of all people. He wants good things for all people. And so that's where our petition comes in in this prayer. <clears throat> we understand. We understand that no matter what you look like, no matter what color you are, no matter how much brain you have, or no matter what part of the nation or part of the, part of the world you live in, that God desires good things for you. Just like he desires good things for me. <clears throat> and so this petition, in this petition we understand that God is desiring these good things for all people. He always has. But we also understand that, well, we're supposed to be able to now put aside our own selfish wills. And instead work towards the good for all people. And so I have a challenge for all of us here at Alders Gate. <clears throat> This challenge is especially made to our leadership. This challenge is that all the decisions that we make, every single one, the decision that we make is for our faith community, not from a position of what we want. Instead, we're making these decisions based on what's best for all of us. For all of us who gather together on a Sunday morning. For all of us who we are encountering through the ministries and missions that we are doing. Implementing God's will for us all and not what's best for me. So implementing God's will, it, it means that we are willing to place the good for all people at the heart of everything we do as a community of believers. Now, with this next petition, we're going to switch gears a little bit. This fourth petition, it, it lies at the very crux of the Lord's Prayer. It's right there in the middle. And in a lot of ways, it really does echo back to the Jewish prayers of the first century. Now, if you think about it, there is one thing that every culture has. It may look different in each culture, but it has this one thing. It's a staple. And that staple is called bread. It's a staple for all of us. And that's why Jesus included this one. Give us this day our daily bread. Because it's in this petition that we recognize that God is in the business of giving this thing out. This thing we call daily bread. He gives it to everybody. But we also have to understand that in that petition we are recognizing that we also must work to earn that daily bread. I'll explain that in a minute. Now there's something interesting about this petition that has made theologians scratch their heads with wonder for the last 2,000 plus years. There's a single word in this phrase. The Greek word is epiousios. Everyone say that. <laughs> Man, you are brilliant. <laughs> I, I'm the best Greek teacher on the planet. Look at that. Ebusios. And so historically this word has been translated from Greek into all these other languages. And, and it's always translated as the word daily. In most Bibles that's where you're going to find it. But you see there's a problem with this. The problem is we don't find the word Ebusios anywhere else in the Greek. You don't find it anywhere else in the New Testament. You don't find it in extra testimony testamental works in Greek. Nothing. This word does not exist anywhere outside of the Gospels. Which means that somebody made this word up. 
Now, I have four daughters, and my youngest one, she created a word several years ago. I'm going to use this as an example. She created this word several years ago. She told us that she was going to lay lax. I'm going to lay lax. I had no idea what that meant. And so I'm talking to her and I'm saying, okay, Thaley, tell me, what does that mean to lay lax? And so this four-year-old little girl, she walks over, she hops up on the couch and she props herself back and puts her hands behind her. This is lay laxer. I love that word. I love the fact that a four-year-old has created a word that's a perfectly great word. And so our family now talks about, we lay lax. Sunday afternoon is a day of laylaxation, right? So this person, this made up this word, and it's okay that he did, but we don't know exactly what it means, and so we have to kind of dig around and figure this out. Now, I'm not going to go into all the particulars of the research that I've done on the word that all the different scholars have said, but I think we do need to understand that, that the meaning of this petition goes far, far beyond just asking God for daily bread. Jesus seems to me that he's been teaching us to pray to our Father for the bread that never runs out. This is, this is bread that never ceases to come to us from God. So the best way, I think, to understand this petition is in light of another biblical passage. If we look at the book of Exodus. If you remember in the book of Exodus, about chapter 16, the, the people there, the, the Israelites, had left Egypt, and they're out in the wilderness wandering around, and they begin to get hungry, and they don't know how they're going to eat anything, and they begin to complain to Moses, we're so hungry, our stomachs are rumbling, what are we going to do, Moses? And so Moses goes to God and says, these people are griping at me, what are we, what, how am I going to feed all these people? And so this is what God said. <clears throat> I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. And in that way I will test them whether they will follow my instructions or not. This really seems to be the point of what Jesus is teaching us here in the Lord's Prayer. God's always going to provide exactly what we need. He's going to give us enough bread for today. We've got enough to get us through the day. But he's also promising he's going to give us enough bread for all of our tomorrows too. He'll give another abundance of bread tomorrow. And then he'll give another one the day after. And then another one the day after. But here's the kicker of the whole thing. God's going to provide all that bread out in the wilderness. But we still have to quit relaxing and get up and go out together, don't we? We have to work for the bread that God has provided. We have to work for the gift that God is giving to us. But here's something we need to pay attention to. Just like a couple of weeks ago, we, we are learning that we have to pray to our Father. We're also praying about our bread, not my bread. See, the community of faith, we need to understand that, that this is our bread together. And so there may be some times that, that I need to get up and go out and gather some bread up for, for me, but I also might need to be gathering enough for you too because you're not feeling well or you're not able to get up and go out on that day. And so I bread, get enough bread for me and for you. It's our bread. And then there may be some days that I'm not doing okay 
until you get up and you go out and gather enough bread for you, but you're also gathering enough for me. And so regardless of who is gathering up all of this bread that God is giving to us, this gift from our loving Father is giving to us because it is our bread. And so I hope we understand that each and every day God is acting. And yet we are also expected to work. God gives birth to this kingdom into our presence. And yet we need to be working to bring this kingdom to earth. God's will is there flowing from his throne and down into our world from the heavenly realm. And yet we also need to be working so that all people benefit from God's will. And God provides the bread of life. And you and I, we, we go forth to gather that bread of life for ourselves. But we also gather it for our neighbors. Now this week, I know we've had a couple of snow days. And so I had a little bit of time to think a little bit more than I normally have. And as I thought about this this week, <clears throat> I came to a realization. And that is that I cannot, in all truth, all honesty, I cannot think of another community of faith that I would personally rather be a part of besides Aldersgate. I, I look at this community of people and I enjoy receiving God's provisions with you. And, and I enjoy working alongside you, helping to bring in the bread and to, to bring in God's will and to bring in the kingdom of God. I, I think it's a wonderful thing. And so it makes me humbled it makes me proud that I get to join all of you and work beside you as we are called out into the world to do the work that God is already doing in our midst. In the name of the Father and the Son.